Make sure your cell phones are turned off, and while you're turning off cell phones, I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Let's pray, and we will uh, open up God's Word together. Lord, prepare our hearts as we open up your Word. I just think about the songs we've been singing this morning, Lord, and just the life, Lord. How do we explain life to people that have never experienced it? How do we demonstrate not just a, not, how do we focus our own eyes, Lord, on not a quantity of life, but a quality of life? That quality of abundant life that we're promised in relationship with you. And Lord, we've been born again by your spirit. We've been forgiven and redeemed. And I pray, Lord, that that impacts us. We expect you to return for your church. And I pray that that would impact us, that all of these things, Lord, would be, uh, that our words would be matched by the, the testimony of our lives, that we are alive in Christ. Where would we be without you? And Lord, where would we be without your word, revealing yourself to us, showing us things we would have never guessed or understood had you not revealed them to us? Lord, thank you for making yourself known to us in such a personal way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. We've been following uh, through the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick up today in chapter 8, verse 22. And if you were here last week, uh, and maybe if you're new to Calvary Chapel, you, you might not understand that we start in chapter 1 of any given book, and we travel on through verse by verse and chapter by chapter to the end of that. And we're sort of in the history portion of the New Testament, the history of the church, the history of Jesus, going through the Gospel of Mark, and then the history will continue after we finish the Gospel of Mark. We'll get into the book of Acts, and we'll see the history of the church continuing on. Uh, where we left off last week was in verse 21. Jesus had again fed the multitudes, and again it seemed the disciples were just not understanding. They had ears, but they weren't really comprehending what they were hearing. They had eyes, but they didn't understand what they were seeing. And the last question Jesus asked them, I think he asked them nine questions in that previous section. And the last question, after talking to them about the two different feedings, now, you know, Remember when people were hungry and I broke the bread and, and how many did we feed and, and what happened next? And okay, they answer how, 12, you know, and verse 20 says, when I broke the, the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets were left? And they said seven. And then he says to them, verse 21, how is it you do not understand? I mean, what is getting in the way? You're seeing everything, but you're not understanding. You're not sort of taking that in. You're not being able to put two and two together, we might say. And so what comes next is really an elaboration, a continuation of the fact that, that there is a difference between having physical vision and spiritual vision. There, there can be a physical... When Jesus, his focus is not merely on the physical world. The things of the physical world are meant to teach us spiritual truths. I mean, how is God supposed to communicate with us the eternal truths of his kingdom and, and his person when we have only the comprehension of the things of the world. So he uses things like sowing and seeds and, and agriculture, and, and he uses these examples to teach us things about spiritual life, about himself. And so there's a difference between, well, I should say a comparison between physical vision and spiritual vision. We understand physical blindness. 
And then therefore, because we understand what it's like and we can comprehend what it's like to be physically blind, we can also understand what it's like to be spiritually blind. You can have great vision, physically speaking, but be spiritually blind. And that's hard for us to understand. That's harder for us to comprehend when we talk about spiritual blindness, the inability to comprehend spiritual things, even though you're seeing them right in front of you. And that can happen for a number of reasons. And, and some of those reasons Jesus has already talked about. He says to them, hey, beware, take heed, watch out for the doctrines, the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. Be careful of traditionalism. Be careful of materialism. You know, only believing in what you can see. There are those that believe that. The Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in, 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 in eternal life. So they were what we would call the materialists, the, the Pharisees, very much, you know, traditionalism. And, and that dictated how they, how they treated people. They were hypocrites. And so beware, he says, because you can easily be influenced by those things. It's also, you can easily be influenced by where you put your focus, what you focus on. Now, physically speaking, maybe you grew up playing ball. I grew up playing t-ball. My dad was a t-ball coach, and I played uh, t-ball. Do they still do t-ball, or is it co- coach pitch now? It is, there still is t-ball, and the thing's just sitting right there. You know? And you figure, it should be obvious, but we all tell the kids the same thing, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. We want them to focus on the right thing, because they'll never hit it unless they look at it, because the amount of space that you can focus on and see detail is about the size of the width of your thumb extended at the, uh, with, at the end of your extended arm. That's all, you can, that's all your eyes can actually physically focus on at one time. Everything else is what we call peripheral vision. Now you can see with your peripheral vision, but everything you see in the periphery is going to be uh, cloudy or foggy or indiscriminate. You cannot focus on anything in your periphery only what your eyes are currently focused on, uh, that little tiny one-inch spot. Did you know that? See, to me that's fascinating uh, because spiritually it's a similar idea. You, you've got to, what you focus on is what you're going to see clearly. And what you focus on, distractions can make you lose your focus, right? Things, other people's distractions, other people's opinions can make you lose your focus. And so Jesus is now about to present a new aspect of himself about his suffering and his death. And he's working his disciples to show them that maybe they don't understand now and understanding doesn't always come right away, but someday you will understand. And when he was resurrected, they did understand. But verse 22 is not just a, don't see these sections as disconnected. Watch the flow. Mark puts this here. Mark's the only one that records this healing of all the gospels. And it's there for a reason. It's there to be a a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth. Verse 22 says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, came to Bethsaida, which means a house of of a hunter, a house of a fisherman. So this was a fishing village. He came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, yes, that's what it says, when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. 
Then he put, out his, uh, put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, we, we don't know this blind man's name. Uh, he's brought by some friends to Jesus. Uh, he knows he's blind. You don't have to convince him of that. The challenge with spiritual blindness, uh, rather than physical blindness, a physically blind person doesn't usually try to pretend that they can see. They know that they're blind. They know they need help. Uh, they know that they need to be led or have some assistance. Uh, but spiritually blind people are a little tougher to deal with because oftentimes they think they're seeing everything clearly when they're not. But this man, in his physical blindness, um, he is, he's brought, he's led, brought by friends to Jesus. And they want to see him, they want to see their friend be healed. They want to see him be able to see clearly. Paul talks about people whose, whose, whose mind, the eyes of their minds are blinded by the God of the stage. So there is a blindness that has to do with your mind. Now that's not a physical, but it's a spiritual. It's I can't, I see things around me, but I don't make the spiritual connections. I'm not seeing the spiritual things. And there are so many of us in here. I mean, I know you guys, and maybe some of you have been brought here. You're here because someone brought you. Because they looked at your life and said, well, he's just not seeing the reality of the world we live in clearly. You know, maybe living for material things or living for selfish things. Or, and you go, oh, this, he's blind. And you ever said that about someone? Like, they're just so blind to the truth, blind to reality. And so they've invited you here because they want you to see what we see. They want you to understand what we've come to understand. It was uh, just this past week I was listening to a story about a guy who plays football for the USC Trojans. And he had, it had been his desire from the time he was a little boy to play football for USC. And he is now a long snapper, I guess for the, for the punter. He snaps for the punter uh, or the place kicker. He's a long snapper for USC. The interesting thing about him is he's blind. And so he has to be led on to the field by a teammate. He puts him into position. And when the time comes, he snaps the ball to whoever's going to receive it. And no one that he's ever played against, the other teams, had no idea he was blind. All they knew is that snapper is amazingly accurate. So he had no physical vision, and yet his accuracy was spot on. The interesting thing about him is, is that he had lost his first eye when he was 10 years old. He had uh, cancer that caused uh, the cancer, uh, optical-related cancer. And so his first eye was removed when he was age 10. And so he would see with one eye. Then age 12, his family got the news that the cancer was in his other eye and that he would have to have his other eye removed. And as I was listening to the story, I just began to picture, like, what would it be like to know you had a doctor's appointment next week? And to know that at that appointment, your one good eye was going to be removed. And when you came out from under the anesthesia, you would wake up to complete darkness for the first time in your life. And I almost started to feel claustrophobic as I was listening to that. Like, I was driving down the street and I thought, if I knew that next week I was going to lose my vision, how much closer would I pay attention to my children's faces? To the sun, to the sky, to the sunrise, to the sunset. I mean, how much more... Would I pay attention to those things? See, this guy in the story, he probably wasn't born blind. Because of some things that are said, uh, it's likely that he had his vision. It was lost at some point, uh, whether it's a disease or an accident or an illness or something that happened. He probably lost his vision along the way. And so his friends bring him 
to, uh, to Jesus. Now he comes, and, and so he takes, verse 23 says, so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Now just what did it take for that? I mean, he's never met Jesus before. He doesn't know him. What did Jesus have to say to him to sort of comfort him? I mean, when you're blind, you're very vulnerable. I mean, we played that game as kids. I don't know if you did it, where one guy closes his eyes and everybody else kind of gives him directions. We did it not walking, but on bicycles. I grew up in the suburbs of North Philly, you know, your standard, you know, city block with the cars parked on the side of the road and all that. And so we'd get on our bicycles and we'd start to go ride around the block and one of us would close our eyes. We'd be pedaling with our eyes closed and the other one's going, oh, no, no, go to the right. No, 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 back to your left. And, and of course, the fun of that was after about five minutes, you're giving them directions right into the back of a car just so you can laugh and watch them run into the back of a car. You're very vulnerable when you can't see. And so Jesus convinces this guy to let him lead him by the hand out of the town because he couldn't get there himself. He, he knew he was blind and he knew he would have to be led. And so he gives Jesus the place in his life, recognizing his blindness. He says, okay, I'll let you lead me. And I'm putting, my, I'm putting myself in your hands. And, and that's a lot what it's like to be a Christian, isn't it? That's called faith. Michael Card sings about it in his song. There's a line in one of the Michael Card songs that says, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold. That's what faith must be. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means we recognize that whatever I can see is not from my own sight. I, I am I'm a blind. I, my, you look at my past life, you can, sell, you can tell I didn't know where I was going. A lot of people are just kind of, wandering around the world directionless like lost sheep or blind people. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They're just kind of out aimlessly wandering around, bumping into stuff, knocking into things. And then Jesus says, I want you to follow me. Well, how, do I, how can I trust you? Just trust me. You'll have to just try and trust me. And so he takes this guy. It's a, it's a great parallel. And he leads him out of the town by the hand. Takes him by the hand. And when he had spit on his eyes, that's not very nice. <laughs> when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. So, I, you know, Jesus doesn't need to spit on his eyes to heal him. He's healed blind people other ways. He's touches, he touches eyes. He spits on the ground and makes dirt and puts it on there and makes clay and puts it on their eyes. And sometimes he just says, yeah, you're healed. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to why Jesus uses spit in this. Um, we don't know for sure. Some say they recognize that spittle in the, in the Talmud, in the Jewish writings, that they recognize there, were heal, there was healing power in spittle. And so after service today, if you are um, needing a prayer, we're going to open up the, the, the prayer room over here and we'll spit on you see if it works. Uh, maybe if you believe spit has power, um, I don't know. But the, so maybe it's something that this guy would have been familiar with. I don't know. Uh, do with that what you will. It's, it's, he spits on the guy's eyes. Another, another commentary said that maybe the guy's eyes were sort of congealed shut by maybe he had some discharge from his eyes and his eyes were kind of closed because of that in the spit. He kind of washed his eyes with the spit and so he could open his eyes again. I don't know. He doesn't need to do any of that. Uh, what, but what comes next is even more amazing to me. Verse 24, 
So he, he spits on his eyes, puts his hand on him, and says, hey, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And that's kind of what I see when I take my glasses off. I see a lot of glasses around this congregation. So anybody else useless without their glasses? I mean, if I take my glasses off, I'm nearsighted, which means I can't see things far away. So if, I have, if I'm without my glasses, then you guys all look like big blobs of color moving around. I can't really discern anything specific about you. I can't make any details. Now, the interesting thing is this guy seems to know what trees look like. So that's why I say maybe he already he was sighted at one time because he has a recollection, a memory of trees. A, a person who's blind doesn't think, doesn't dream like you and I dream. They don't dream with visions uh, like that. They dream of feelings and touch and the senses that they do know. Now, I don't know that personally. I've done a lot of little research on this. So he had to have some kind of concept of trees. And so he sees these people, not meaning like, like they look exactly like trees, but he sees these, these large objects and they're moving. He sees large moving objects. So the interesting thing about that is, why isn't the guy totally healed? I mean, is, does Jesus' magic wand need repair? I mean, are his sights off a little bit? Is he, is he weakening in his power? Or is this miracle on purpose? Is this a miracle that's demonstrating the fact that sometimes you can see things or people but not really perceive, which is the problem the disciples were having. They were seeing him, but they weren't perceiving him. Does that make sense? And so Jesus touches the guy, and he opens his eyes, and he sees something, but it's not real clear. And, I, and, I, and, and that's true of us when we see, we don't see each other clearly. We don't see things clearly as, as much as we'll know about God. I mean, you can, be a, you can memorize your Bible, you can know it front to back, back to front, and you're still not going to understand everything you're going to understand when you're face-to-face face, face face with Jesus Christ in heaven. That is when, you know, now we know in part. And then we'll know perfectly. Then we'll know just as we're known. I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see like in a, in a foggy mirror, in a dark glass, dimly, we, we get a sense, we, we see more and more. The more we get to know Christ, the more we see. But even still now, our understanding is growing, isn't it? So we can be a little easier on the disciples. Their understanding is growing. And he says to them, how is it that you do not yet perceive? And they will perceive, they'll perceive more. And so will we, so will you, so will I. Our understanding grows. So he puts his hand on his eyes again and made him look up. And then he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And so that's the, the second part. So it's like a two-part healing, right? It's a two-part healing. The second time he touches him, now the guy opens his eyes again, and he sees everyone clearly. And who's the first person he sees clearly? He sees Jesus clearly. For the first time ever, the first I imagine, imagine his, as his eyes open and he looks right into Jesus' eyes, the first thing he sees clearly is Jesus. And, and that's what's really behind all of these, this, this section that we're in is seeing Jesus clearly first. You won't see anything else clearly. You won't see your kids clearly. You won't see your job clearly. You won't see church clearly. You won't see your spouse clearly. You won't understand your purpose clearly until you see Jesus clearly. And, and, and sometimes what it takes, and this is what it takes, this is 
This is a touch from God. This is only God can open your eyes that way. You need a miracle. You need God to open your eyes. Just as Paul's eyes were open on the road to Damascus. Right? He was blinded, and then he, he, he was, his eyes were blinded on the road to Damascus, and then someone else came and laid hands on him, and his eyes were open. Something like scales fell off of his eyes, and he saw clearly. Something like scales had to fall off of my eyes because I, I didn't see people, people clearly. I didn't see myself clearly. I didn't know nothing until I got saved. And all of a sudden, everything looked different. The way I viewed everything was different because now it was all viewed through the lens of Christ and eternity and spiritual things. And, and maybe there's someone here this morning that, that just, you know, you're coming, you're still spiritually blind and, and you can come. Maybe your friends, again, as I said, maybe your friends have bought you, brought you because they know your eyes need to be open. Before you're going to see, you're trying to go from, from patch to patch to band-aid to band-aid to band-aid in your life. And none of those are the problem. None of those are the problem. None, there's no quick fix. There's no easy solution. The issue is you've got to see Jesus clearly. And then everything else will begin to come into focus. We don't see each other clearly. The Phar- I mean, remember, the Pharisees, did they see people clearly? Who, were people, who did they see when they looked at people? They didn't see, they saw men like trees needed to be cut down. Needed to be pruned. You know, self-righteous. They, they used men for their own, to meet their own needs. And that's oftentimes how we see people is, so it's just someone else I can use. I've quoted a few times, I think I quoted it Wednesday night, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they treat someone who can do nothing for them. That's called seeing people clearly. So his eyes are restored, meaning brought back to their original condition. So it's possible, again, that he, he did see clearly. And it doesn't say he saw everything clearly. He did, but the focus is on everyone. He saw people for the first time in his life. He goes, oh! You know, or, or maybe he's remembering what they looked like before, if he did have sight, and seeing them again clearly and think, oh, did he have a family? Did he have a wife? Was he able to see them clearly again for the first time in a long time? But Jesus says to him, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Uh, Again, trying to avoid the concept that all he's about is physical healing. That's not all Jesus is about. It's not about the physical healing. The physical healing points to what, folks? Points to the spiritual eyes being opened. We sing the song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Great prayer. Great prayer. So verse 27, don't look at this as a separate separate thing it's a continual discussion uh, now jesus and his disciples went out of the town out to the towns excuse me of caesarea philippi this is to the north of the sea of galilee what we would call the region of the golan heights and on the road he asked his disciples saying to them who do men say that i am so you know who how do men see are people seeing me clearly now he's not Jesus doesn't have a self-esteem complex. He's not worried about his identity. He's not worried about his reputation. Hey, guys, I'm feeling a little insecure. Do people like me? I mean, what are people saying about me? He's not worried about what the opinion poll is saying that day. That's not why he's asking the question. Can we agree on that? That's not why he's asking the question. But it is a good question, isn't it? Who do men say that I am? Well, the answer they give is, well, and they knew well, Jesus, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Well, of course, John the Baptist has been beheaded, so it, 
why are they saying John the Baptist? Well, they would be saying it's, he's, Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected and his preaching is so powerful. And he's confronting the religious leaders of the day and the abuses and he's calling people to repentance. And, and we really think he's John the Baptist because look at his preaching. But others said, no, 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 he can't be John the Baptist. John the Baptist never did any miracles. And look at the miracles this guy is doing. I mean, he's raising the dead. And they asked him, Jesus, show us a sign from heaven. Like, Jesus, call down fire from heaven. Why are they asking him that? They think maybe this is Elijah, who was promised there in the Old Testament that Elijah would come back before the day of the Lord. And so they're thinking, maybe this is Elijah. Look at his miracles. Look at his power. And then others say, well, he's just a prophet. You know, he's just one of the prophets because he's calling the nation back to God. So there are all of these speculations. And today, uh, now I doubt that uh, you would go down to Food Lion and grab someone in the frozen food section. I mean, not literally grab them, but say, hey, and I suggest, you know what? It's really good to do this sometimes. Sometimes do this when you're just hanging, your people you work with, you know, your Thanksgiving is coming up. Great table conversation at Thanksgiving. So, you know, past the cranberries, who do you think Jesus is? Wouldn't that make for interesting conversation? But ask the question, because it's phenomenal. I don't think anybody in, in Food Lion, if you ask, or at work, is going to say, if you say, who, who do you think Jesus is? They're going to say, you know, I think he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Do you think you're going to hear that today? I don't think so. But what you might hear today is, you know, I don't think he really ever existed. This is a growing group of people. They're called mythicists that believe that Jesus was just a myth concocted by human beings for their own purposes. Uh, the article I read on this uh, shows that this is a growing number of people and that the large, pe the large number of people that profess this are not trained in history, religion, or biblical studies or any associated field nor are they trained in ancient languages, and basically none of them have any degree to speak with authority about whether or not Jesus ever existed or not. But be careful because you can be influenced. You can easily be uh, influenced by public opinion, and sometimes the more people say something, the more others parrot it, the more it becomes believed. And now we live in the days where, well, we don't really believe Jesus ever really existed. Now, there are still the religions of the world that uh, say the following, Christian science uh, says uh, Jesus was a man in tune with the divine consciousness, but not the Christ. Islam says Jesus is a created being, a prophet, but not God. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is a created being. He's Michael the archangel who became a man. The Mormons say uh, Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, uh, the devil, and, uh, and of all people. So um, these are very, very uh, summarized views. You can look them up if you like and get more detail. And the Unity Church also says Jesus is a created being, a man, not the Christ. So it's really, it'd really be curious to see what are your friends saying? What's popular opinion? What are people at work with uh, saying about Jesus that you work with? Ask them. See what they say. But then once you go through all that, the question really comes to, who do you, who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus asked them next. He says to his guys, in verse 29, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I mean, are they being influenced by popular opinion? Are they being influenced by Phariseeic teachings, by, by religious beliefs? 
Who do you say that I am? It's a good question, isn't it? I think that question is as impacting and as penetrating today as it was when he asked his disciples, oh, wait a second, you know, this is getting just a little too personal, Jesus. Now, we've grown up in, in this wonderful culture, this wonderful education culture, where all we do is study to get the right answer so we can regurgitate it on the test and move on. So a lot of us are test-taking Christians. Who, who is, I could say to you, you know, who do you say that he is? Oh, he's Jesus, Son of God, Savior of the world. Bing, 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 right answer. And you pat yourself on the back, hey, I, I got the right answer. But your life might say that you believe Jesus to be someone completely different. You can say the answer. You can, get the, you can put it down on the, on, the, on the empty blank spot on the back of the sermon notes if you had them. But who does your life say that Jesus is? I mean, if he is who he says he is, and he fully claims to be God, because a lot of people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Read your Bible. So much would be cleared up if people just read their Bibles. Don't believe what someone else is telling you. Don't believe just what the popular media says. Don't believe what the guy you met over here says. Read your Bible and see what God says. And so much would be cleared up. But the question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you really say? If he is who he claims to be, and if he is God in the flesh, and he says, no one comes to the Father but by me, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if he says, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And if he is who he says he is, then worship him. Then worship him. Don't just say he's Lord, or he's, but make it your reality. Who does your life say that he is? That's a penetrating question, isn't it? That's one of those questions that kind of makes you go, oh, you know, this, I thought this was a fun church. You told me this was going to be a fun church. And now he's asking these hard questions. I'm never coming back here again. But the answer to that question is, is very, very important. And again, Jesus is delving into their lives to see what the influences are in their lives. And I think it's good to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus to me? I mean, one of the answers that they didn't get that no one would have said then is we don't believe he exists. They were all looking at him. Only in our later day, 2,000 years later, can we look back on someone that existed and say we really don't think he existed. That would have been a ludicrous answer to them. So Peter, the spokesperson for the group, answers and says, you are the Christ. Hey, Peter, right answer. In Matthew, this goes on. Jesus goes on to talk about, you know, great answer, Peter. And, you know, you are Cephas, but on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, bound in heaven, bound on earth and you know, you know, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. That's the whole Matthew passage. But Mark doesn't go into that. He just says, you know, you are the, you are the Christ. Meaning, the word Christ means one who is anointed. And in the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, you understand that to be anointed with oil meant uh, that that was a testimony that God was choosing you for a specific purpose, especially to be a priest or a king. And this came to mean later on more along the lines of the, the one who was the Messiah, the one who was the anointed one, would be the one that would pick up and take over the throne of King David, to carry on the kingly line of Israel through David on into, uh, on into the future. So that's what this would... When he says, you're the Christ, he means 
you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, they're the one that's going to set up the kingdom to rescue us uh, from all of the oppression we've been under from the Romans. So then he strictly, verse 30, warned them that they should tell no one about him. Their concept of him is good, but it's still a little twisted. They see partially, but not fully, because their concept of the Messiah is wrong. Remember, these are the guys that we're going to see three times in Mark, Jesus is going to tell them, now look, you were right what you said about me. But before victory is going to come suffering and rejection and death. So we're not ready for that yet. I mean, we... That doesn't match up. That doesn't line up with what we were thinking. And they're going to continue to argue about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. They're going to continue to think about themselves as sitting in the thrones with Jesus and ruling the world and ha, 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 you know, power, greatness, wealth, prosperity. That's the things they're going to be thinking about. And Jesus has got to sort of teach them that that's not what the Messiah is going to be. That's, that's your Messiah. That's the, that's the Messiah you've made up. That's not Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Verse 31 says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter back at you, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And that's where we'll end for today and, and we'll pick up next week. The, the, the teaching continues, so I encourage you to be here next week so you can follow this all the way through. But isn't that why we love Peter? I mean, in, in one paragraph, he, is, he said the right answer. He's invited to the head of the class. You know, ah, Peter. Way to go. You got it. But then we, the next scene, we see him rebuking Jesus. Like, don't do that. That's not a good idea. He rebukes Jesus. He says, oh, no, no. Jesus says, look, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, let you into a little truth about what's coming. Yes, there's going to be vic- victory. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Savior. Yes, I am going to set up a kingdom. But it's not an earthly kingdom. And before I set up my kingdom, before I come into my power, I'm going to have to suffer. Now, Jesus, don't say that. That's negative thinking. Don't you know that what you say becomes your reality? That's not the power of positive thinking, Jesus. That's what, that's what Peter's telling him. How, how, no, not on my watch, Jesus. You're not going to have to suffer on my watch. The Son of Man... And and that's the term Jesus used often of himself, the son of man. That goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Son of speaks of origin. It's a a human origin. Son of meaning originating from man, but he's also the son of God. He's originated from God and from man. He came from heaven. And so he's the Messiah come from heaven to set up a kingdom, and he's going to have to suffer things, and he's going to have to be rejected. Man, we don't like that either. We don't like to be rejected. No, we want, Jesus, no, you're going to be accepted. Everybody's going to accept you. Listen, we follow a Savior who gets rejected all the time. He's been rejected from politics. He's been rejected from government. He's been rejected from schools. He's been rejected from most people's minds and most people's homes. 
So why do we still seem so surprised when someone puts Jesus down, when someone refuses to believe, when, someone, when, when, when government makes a decision or schools make a decision? Why does that surprise us? You should be expecting it. You should go, oh, praise the Lord, this is exactly what he said. I'm going to get rejected. That means, guys, we're on the right track. If you find yourself getting rejected, if you find yourself suffering a little bit at work, if you know, I can't put my Bible out, people call me names here because I read my Bible. People think I'm an idiot because I believe in God and, and he's just a myth. Praise the Lord, you're on the right track. If the world accepts you, then maybe you've got trouble. If what you're saying, if you write a book about being a Christian and it's a bestseller at Barnes & Noble, maybe you're on the wrong track. Because Jesus' book, I'm not sure it'd be a bestseller. Now, the Bible, bestseller. But suffering, rejection, these are not the kind of things that sell books these days. Wealth, prosperity, abundance, these things sell books to an American materialistic mind, don't they? And look what he goes on to say. Speaking of that, look what he goes on to say to Peter. Peter rebukes him. Hey, Jesus, you're not going to, you don't, you can have the kingdom without suffering. You can have it the easy way. You can have your cake and eat it too. So he turns around, he looks at the disciples, and he rebukes Peter. And he says, look at this. How does this feel if this is you? Get behind me, Satan. Huh? I thought I was doing pretty good. Remember what I just said a few minutes ago? I thought I was doing good. Now you're calling me Satan. And Peter, Jesus isn't calling Peter Satan. Peter is not Satan. But what, what's happening is Jesus, as he says that, he is reminded of the time when he was being tempted in the wilderness. For 40 days, he's fasting. Satan comes to him tempts him and one of the temptations is jesus i will give you all of the kingdoms of the world he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. i'll give you everything if you just do what if you worship me sometimes prosperity sometimes abundance comes from worshiping satan and not from god now god blesses don't get me wrong god my life has been so blessed by god but we're not talking material you can have all the material blessing in the world and be spiritually blind and dead. So when he says, get behind me, Satan, he is seeing that, that Peter is, is being influenced, is saying words that sound like from the, from the pit of, from the mouth of Satan himself, hey, Jesus, you can have power, but not suffer. You can have the kingdom without the cross. And anybody who tells you that today, that you can have Christ and not die to yourself, they haven't read the next part of this chapter. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Next week, Pastor Warren will be teaching and he'll elaborate on that. And the problem is, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're mindful of the things of man and not the things of God. And aren't we so, where's our focus? Where's that thumb? Where, where do we look? What's that small thing we're focusing on typically in our life? The things of man, what I need. What's important? How do I get popular? How do I become accepted? How do I form my identity by you know, looking for approval from other people? All these things, we're, we're focused on the kingdom of man. And that brings us to self-centeredness and to, oh, the worst thing you can do, parents, the worst thing you can do is, is, is insulate your kids from ever having to struggle. Now, no parent loves to see, likes to see their kids suffer. But we've gone to the extreme of being focused on, on the things of man. You know, in school, 
at work, you know. People want to have the, the, the $100,000 a year job, but never do the $10 an hour job. I want to I I just take the pill and be there quick, without struggle, without suffering, without challenge. And then we apply those truths to our Christian life. Say, well, I became a Christian two weeks ago, and I'm still in debt. I thought, I heard pastors, I sent in money to that guy on TV, and he sent me a glove that he blessed. And he said if I gave money to his program, that I'd be blessed, that I, he would give me a handkerchief, and, and then all of a sudden money would fall from the sky. Then I asked him, why, don't you, why are you asking for money? Why don't you use one of your own handkerchiefs? Then you wouldn't be asking me for money. That focuses, it's all focused on the things of man, the things that are, the things of this world, listen, this, this will set you free forever. The things of this world, it's all temporary. And you, 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 you find out at your funeral, well, you won't find out, it'll be too late for you at your funeral. <laughs> you better find out before your funeral what's really important. So about everything you do in life, you ask yourself, is this eternal or is this temporary? Well, I really want that, you know, that, uh, Jesus knows you have basic needs and he's promised to meet those for you. Outside of that, it's icing on the cake. If you've got some stuff, be thankful. We live in this world, but don't be of the world. Don't let this world's way of thinking pollute your mind. Don't live for the things of the world. Live, use the world to live for the things of the kingdom. Money's great when you give it away. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So all the things, this, but this is the thing, that Peter, you're focused not on the things. that God has a way of working. God works through suffering and, and spiritual death. Sometimes it leads to physical death, but you cannot live. Listen, you may have come to church, you may have been sitting in a church seat for 25 years and never understood this one truth. Being a Christian isn't just about, you know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't do, go with girls that do. That's not what it, just being morally good. Being a Christian is about being born again. It's about dying to yourself your identity, all that you are. And it's, and it's about dying to yourself and living for Christ, whatever that means. And, and we'll talk about that next week. That's what being a Christian is about. Not the little checklist of the, I do the good things, I do the right things, I read my Bible, all that stuff. That's all good and that's fine. But there's more to it. You've got to be focused on the things of God. Your whole life, things of God, not things, it changes the way you live, doesn't it? And that will change the way you see everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the sight you've given us, the spiritual sight. Lord, we'd be living for lies. We'd be living for in darkness, living not able to see, and you've opened up your word to us like the lamp and a light, Lord. It's given us sight and vision. You've opened our eyes to the truths of your kingdom, and Lord, now help us to live for them. Help us to resist the, uh, all of the alternate opinions, all of the the mass of media and the influence and help us to keep our eyes focused on that little spot that is you. To keep you as the apple of our eye. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and we'll close with a song.